May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please, have a seat. When did you know it, the rain picks up, right, as you all have to listen to me. Hopefully the microphone works. We have some trouble sometimes. So I've been looking for some kind of joke or story or something to lead off this sermon all week, right, when we're talking about Cyrus and the Israelites. And just nothing was coming to me. And then Game 7 happened last night. If you know me, I am no fan of the Astros. I get, I, yeah, see, y'all can boo and throw things if you want. <laughs> so it's hard for me. I mean, I get that the Astros are good for the city right now and all of that, but I'm a diehard Texas Ranger fan, have been since I was born. I got my jeering section over here. But then it struck me. The Astros beat the Yankees. Everybody can get behind that, right? What's the quote? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so for at least that series, I could root for the Astros. I don't care about the Dodgers as much, so y'all are on your own. So that brings us to our reading from Isaiah. And we have this this king, King Cyrus. So King Cyrus, he's the Persian emperor of another country, another group of people. And he's invited by God to play a key role in the story of God's people. Cyrus doesn't know God. Cyrus isn't a follower of Yahweh. And Cyrus doesn't have any idea the role that God wants him to play. So we're introduced to Cyrus through the words of the prophet Isaiah. The prophet says, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, I will go before you, I will level the mountains, I'll break the doors of bronze, I'll cut through iron bars, I will give you treasures and riches so that you know that it is I, the Lord, God of Israel, who call you by name. So for someone who doesn't know God like Cyrus does, God's got a pretty great plan for him, it seems. So here we have two separate motives. God's motive was freedom from bondage and a new opportunity for God's people. Cyrus's motive was an expanding kingdom, larger territory, military might, and increasing that area over which he reigned. So then I ask myself, maybe you ask yourself, how could God use such a person to free God's people? So once again, I think we're reminded that God indeed works in mysterious ways. We have Cyrus, someone who didn't know God, someone who didn't worship God, someone who didn't really care about God, was to be the Messiah, the Messiah. In Hebrew, it's the definitive article, the Messiah. It's the only time in all of scripture that that title is given to a Gentile. That's the way they describe David, that's the way they describe Solomon, that's the way they described people in the house of God, the people of God who was to be their savior. And here we have this Persian. 
Historical evidence, though, shows us that Cyrus actually was interested in all sorts of gods. He was covering all his bases, I guess. He decidedly was not a follower of Yahweh. And even after this whole episode, he still probably didn't become a follower of Yahweh. There's later inscriptions that talk about his allegiance to pagan gods. So here we have this division, maybe, between the world, which Cyrus wanted to conquer and control, and God's kingdom, which God wanted to restore. And these two divisions, maybe, come face to face. Or perhaps there's not actually a distinction. For the people of God, their only hope of freedom from the Babylonians was a foreign warlord who was going to kill a bunch of people to set the Israelites free. So that's our Hebrew Bible reading. And then into this picture of God's presence in the world comes a confrontation in Matthew's Gospel. And I think this story that we've probably all heard a lot sheds some light on this supposed distinction between the world and God's kingdom. So here we have during Jesus' final days in Jerusalem, his opponents devise a question that's intended to trap Jesus. They either want him to show disloyalty to Jewish tradition and law, or they want him to show subversion to Rome. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the Herodians, the followers of Herod, so both the religion, religious leaders, and political leaders, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they try to throw Jesus off. First they praise him, Teacher, we know you are sincere. We know you teach the way of God. Just imagine that in your deepest, deepest flattery. We know Jesus. But then comes the question. Tell us now, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor? Now, if I'm honest, sometimes, usually every April, I wish Jesus would have given a better answer (laughs) to this question. But instead, Jesus, it's clear, understood the motive of his questioners. When he asked back to them, why are you putting me to the test? I think it's helpful to know that before this episode, before this encounter, Jesus had already been in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the tax collectors and the money changers, addressing the the issue of the temple tax. So this tax here that they're trying to trap Jesus on, this is a different tax levied by the Roman emperor on all the inhabitants of occupied lands. So essentially, on the people of God, the Jewish people. This tax had to be paid in Roman currency, the denarius. One denarius was essentially one day of average pay. So Jesus asked for this coin. 
He says, hand me this coin. And stamped on this coin was the likeness of Caesar. There's been other similar coins found by archaeologists and it was also probably stamped with the phrase Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. So when Jesus asked whose image was on the coin, the answer obviously was the emperor's, but it goes deeper than that. The coin was stamped with the picture of the emperor saying, here is the divine emperor who is also our high priest. So then Jesus continues to turn the tables, this time rather metaphorically, on his questioners, and he puts himself in the position of the one asking the question. And then his statement, his answer to the original question, becomes this command, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's. This coin was minted by the emperor. This coin was stamped with the emperor's image. So give it back to the emperor. This is a verse that we hear a lot. This is a piece of scripture that's often taken out, sometimes used out of context, sometimes used in good ways. But this coin was the thing that was stamped and made in the image of the emperor. So give that back to the emperor. But I think for me, the genius of Jesus' answer is in the remainder of his statement. After he said, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he says, give to God the things that are God's. So what belongs to God? His followers knew the answer. The Pharisees and the Herodians knew the answer, which is why in our gospel it says they walked away and they were amazed. Each and every one of them was created in the likeness and the image of God. Each and every one of them bore the image of God. And so they knew God had a claim on their whole life. So giving back to God meant returning all they had and all they were and all they could do to the source of life. For them, it meant total allegiance to God, heart, mind, and soul. You and I have been created in the image of God as well. And that image was affirmed in baptism, when we were signed and sealed with the sign of the cross, and it was said that we are marked as Christ's own forever. Like that coin was stamped with the image of Caesar, we are minted in the image and likeness of God. We are minted and marked as Christ's own forever. If you're like me, sometimes it's hard to notice that image in others. Sometimes it's hard to notice that image in ourselves. We look at each other, we look at ourselves, and we tend to see 
the image the commercial world wants to stamp on us. We too often see what we do, where we live, how we dress, the company we keep. Nevertheless, there is a much deeper stamp on each of us. A stamp that says that we are created in God's image and that we are loved simply because we are, not for what we can do. We are important, you are important because you are a child of God, sealed with the sign of the cross. So because each of us is stamped with the image of God, we can afford to be who we say we are. Here at St. Mary's, we say we're a church that welcomes all those created in the image of God, which means everyone, right? No one's left outside. We can afford to be that people that we say we are. We can afford to consider new ways of welcoming, new ways of living, new ways of sharing the love of God based on the gifts each one of us can offer. And we can afford to be open. We can afford to invite the gifts of all those who come among us. So everyone has an opportunity to share in the ministry to which we are all called. I believe that we can afford to give God that which is God's. Our hearts, our minds, our souls, our time, our talent, our treasure. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But give to God the things that are God's. We say this every week. We should know this answer here in this place. Because we are called to give God the only gift God wants. Which is what? Our whole lives. Amen.